Hello and welcome to a very special episode of the Shut Up and Sit Down podcast. I guess this is less special than the last time we did that, but that's right. Today's Shut Up and Sit Down is just me, just little old Ava Foxfort sitting in her house and talking to you about games. Now, today I want to be talking a little bit about some solo games. Now, this might not be as in-depth as we'd normally be on a little podcast, but I kind of want to give you a flavour of some of the reasons why people do like playing solo games and some of the things that I've genuinely been quite excited about when playing these games. Now, we're going to be looking at three games today, at least a little bit on each. We've got Marquee by Side Room Games, which is a little game about French resistance worker placement in World War II. We're going to be talking about Iranian Burger Canal, which is not a canal made of burgers, but a canal in Iranian Burger, which is orangey town. I don't know. I probably should have looked that up. I'm probably also going to pronounce it wrong repeatedly. Sorry. This is the new Uwe Rosenberg. It's a yellow box of canals and cards and buildings and some surprisingly smooth solo play. Finally, I will want to touch a little bit on the Big Daddy as far as I am concerned. The For a very long time, the only game that I would play solo was Mage Knight by Vlada Shivatel. Now, this is a beast of a game and there's reasons, but I love it and I never recommend it to anybody apart from me. Solo games are an interesting one. It's very easy to be sniffy about solo gaming because it often feels like it's missing a very important element. When I talk to people about how special board games are, one of the things that I'm likely to be saying most is, well, you're sat at a table with your friends and you're talking and you're playing and you're pushing buttons and moving things and making all of the game happen. And because of that table-toppy gather-roundiness, there's a real, real special something. Like, whatever happens in the game, you are going to be spending time with people who you care about or getting to know strangers who you might care about more in the future. Honestly, I do think they're really magical times that we can spend together. So, is that still the same when you are sitting on your own? No. But there is more than one type of magic. The magic of bringing people together is an important part of the magic of board games, but there's another magical element that I think is still present in a solo game. And sometimes almost more so. You see, games are a ritual. They're a space that you outline that follows different sets of rules to before. We call this the magic circle. If you're into reading about games theory, but not game theory, which is somehow a different thing. So entering into this magic circle, you are focusing on something and making it so that things are more or less important. Things are more deserving of your attention. The rules of a game create a space where you're worrying about things that aren't really real. There is something genuinely creative and magical about that. So I sat down today to play Iranian Burger Canal and it was really quite soothing. This is an Uwe Rosenberg game, which means to some extent you've probably got a good idea of what is happening in the game already. There's a load of victory points to be won. If you can build the right buildings, if you can order your things in the right places, get your resources and turn them into the resources that you need to do the specific tasks that you've decided are important, 
then you'll win. This one is a little bit curious though, because the puzzle of it is slightly different to what it is in most of these games. All of the buildings that you build go into this grid in front of you, which asks you to leave spaces between the buildings. This is because you're also going to be filling this board up with roots, paths made of clay and roads made of brick or railways of metal and wood and canals that are just holes. So you just have to pay a load of money and then you get, get some clay and uh, you've got a canal now and probably some very tired workers. So this root building element is interesting because when you buy a building, it doesn't do anything. Each building will activate once when it has been surrounded by roots and once when it has been given two bridges as roots across the other roots. Oh, I'm saying the word roots is becoming a bit weird in my head now. This means that when you build something, you're not guaranteed to be able to get the most out of it yet. Also, each of these buildings will have a specific set of requirements of resources that it needs not just to build, but in terms of the types of routes that are around it or the things you've got on your board or all sorts of things. Like once you chuck the expansions in, there's so many cards here that I can't imagine how many interesting combinations of things there are here. I mean, I say interesting. I don't know how many of them are going to be interesting. It's just a big deck of cards. You never know until you played it a thousand times, which you might get to quicker if you're playing solo. We're not here to talk about this game in much detail, but what I wanted to think about was what changed about this game by playing it solo. I don't feel ready to talk about whether this is a game I'd recommend or not. Like, I'm really enjoying it, but I think with two players, it only goes up to two players, it might be a little bit... Mm, what's the word? Annoying. People are annoying. They get in your way. In the solo game, there is a blocking device to make it so you can't do every action every turn, but also that blocking device is very rote in how it moves. It's incredibly predictable. You know right from the beginning of the game where it's going to go every time. All of the randomness comes from which buildings get drawn, which you don't see until the end of the turn. So over seven turns in a solo game, you get to see all of the decks that you've drawn, but only bits of them. There's campaign modes. Oh, I'm getting stuck in details again. Oh, it's really hard with this. It's got quite exciting details. Oh my word, I'll tell you what though, the big detail, the big thing, the thing that makes me really excited about Oranian Burger Canal. Oh, the worker chips are enormous wooden discs. They're not called worker chips, they're called action discs. And they have this weird thing where you, instead of just like placing one where you want it to on the board, you actually like take the stack and leave behind when you move to another place. Uh, the reasons for this are a little bit obtuse because they could just be dealing them back and forth, but it doesn't matter, it's lovely. I recommend that every board game company replace all of its pieces with large wooden discs. I think that would make the world a better place. Anyway, as I'm moving this column of discs around, I'm sat there puzzling over the different combos and oh, it's delightful playing on your own because you don't have to worry about someone else getting in your way. Remember I said that two players might be a bit annoying? Well, I think it could be really annoying here, particularly now that I've started playing it solo and I'm used to just being like, okay, no, I can just do that and then I'll get that. Rather than, oh, if I do that, 
then if they do that, then I won't be able to do anything. There's only seven action spaces, which means that the actions in here are quite straightforward. Most of them have overlap, but the important ones, building buildings, making the fancy routes like canals and railways, those are incredibly limited on the board. And so this is the puzzle this game puts in front of you, and you just get to spend a bit of time moving pieces around, putting them back and forth, and just letting them explore the efficiencies of the numbers and the mass and the resources that you've got here. It's got the thing from Glass Road where there's a wheel with a big dial on it that you can rotate to change a big stack of basic resources into some fancy resources. This is simpler here than Glass Road. To be honest, everything about this game is simple. It feels like a quite sharp distillation of a game, which wasn't what I was expecting. It's published by Spielworks, who are known for their like big, beastie, weirdy historical boxes with serious rules and lots of phases. And I think they might have delivered one of the most accessible Uwe Rosenberg games. I'm not going to say never, because for a start, there's things like Patchwork and Bonanza, definitely simpler to look at than this. But it's surprisingly smooth. And at just one player, I didn't really have as much pressure. Now, this is one of my favourite things about these games, is that they take a pressure off that means that you've got time to take a long turn. So you could sit and ponder everything and work out a plan for the entire game. You won't know all of the buildings, so you can't really do that. But you could be really, really considered with it. I found with this game the opposite happened. On my own, I kind of didn't care. I was just enjoying the process. It, it's a ritual, like I was saying, before I probably got distracted by talking about the game, which is my actual job. Moving pieces around. I had three boards arrayed beside me. There was a big, chunky pile of discs and this circle of loads of little pieces of wood that I'm moving up and down and up and down. I've got coins, I've got little victory point banners. All of it is there, these buildings going into the middle. These railways in different sizes so you can build routes all around the board. The specific rules of this. The puzzle is simple. Can you pick buildings that will get you the stuff you need to build more buildings and the routes to surround them? Can you get the right types to get the maximum out of everything? Can you make it so that things that are next to each other will be helpful to each other? Can you remember to put the bridges on in the right order? Can you remember all of the different things that are worming around the board in front of you? Oh, it's lovely. And I didn't really care about winning, certainly on the first game. And actually, I just had a second game and it was it was really, really sweet. I, I beat my first score kind of fairly straightforwardly, but it was still just an hour or so of pushing pieces around and seeing what happened. This explorativeness is kind of nice. You're not worried about taking the perfect move so that you can beat your opponent. Something that I don't entirely care about, but I think it does put a bit of pressure on me to squeeze out what it's worth anyway that that was really nice and i thought there was something sweet about the fact that this game just felt like a a cozy little ritual and it's not often that i find solo games that i'm up for just getting out and pulling out but i can really see this happening anyway 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 let's go on to the next game and actually yeah i think i want to talk about mage knight next 
Mage Knight is one of the big, big daddies of the gaming scene. It's really not a game I recommend. It is convoluted and complicated. It is slightly weird in a lot of very specific ways that make it quite frustrating. It took me a very long time to learn how to play this game and I could only do it once I found someone who was willing to take me under his wing and show me the ropes. You need an apprenticeship program for this. I've often joked about creating a little retreat where people can come to a cabin in the woods with me and I'll teach them how to play Mage Knight. I don't know how many takers I'd get. I'd probably get too many or not enough because it's a very weird proposition. But this is a game that wants time and that is the thing that is valuable for the solo player. Mage Knight is a game where you have a hand of cards that you apply to a landscape of little pieces. A lot, some of these pieces are monsters and then there's this little mathematical battle process that you have to go, oh, it's all so procedural and so finicky and the details are all very frustrating. But it yields some of the best puzzles in games. When you get a hand of cards in Mage Knight, it is a puzzle just in itself. You're looking at these cards, they've got normal abilities, super abilities that you can trigger with mana from the source, but only once per turn. Or maybe you've saved up some crystals from last time, or maybe you can figure out a way to make that one, upgrade that one, and then you've got this list of things you're trying to do. Now, it starts off simple and frustrating. Sometimes you won't have enough movement cards and you will not be able to do anything. Sometimes that means that you fall behind another person and that feels rubbish. It's an irritating game in many ways, but when it works, it is beautiful. And it has this power curve that is almost hilarious. At the beginning of the game, like beating an orc with two health feels like an achievement. Like you've had to plan that for maybe two or three turns to make sure you've got the right resources at the right time. By the end of the game, you're wandering in with seven card hands and you're spending 15 minutes arranging them into a pattern that will work, that will make you destroy dragons, break catapults, burn down walls, make earthquakes, shatter castles. It is huge and somehow, even though you're just laying cards on the table surrounded by a billion tokens and a few slightly, I'm not going to say naff minis, but like they're not the best, somehow in amongst this chaos, you feel like you're telling a story with the maths that you are doing. You're looking at how you barge in with your shield and then brush someone apart, turn someone on fire and then shake the foundations of the entire castle until that one last person is vulnerable to your attack. You're not a good person in this game. The mage knights, I think, are explicitly an evil invasion force. But this procedure is so slow and finicky that it's hard to enjoy with other people, which is something that's really sad. Now, with the perfect partner, a two-player game of Mage Knight is delightful. If you like a little bit of parallel play, waiting for each other to do things and watching what they're getting up to and thinking about how that interacts with what you're thinking about and what you're planning, it can be a delight. But it's a very specific set of circumstances and it's still going to take such a long time. And 
really, honestly, sometimes you are just watching someone fiddle with their cards. Like, you know, I was just telling you earlier that these cards become like this magical, beautiful story. When you're trying to work it out, when you're trying to do the maths, the puzzle, you're not thinking about that. You can't say that out loud. You, you, you're just looking at the cards and moving them around until they make sense to you. Now, it does try to make it so that this will happen together if you're playing the co-op game. But, yeah, fundamentally, you might spend a long time watching someone else fiddle with their cards and then look so happy at the end of it because they're so satisfied. And if you are, if you are okay being excited about what someone else is doing, then, yeah, this could be good for you. But... I mostly have played it solo and it is such a delight. Oh, it is a luxury, decadent afternoon. It takes so long to set up. You will spend so long figuring out what you're going to do. But what this gives you, what all of this hassle gives you, is the time to make this story be yours. I love it. Playing Mage Knight means that all of those frustrations, those finicky rules, the details, they just become something that you can revel in. You don't feel the pressure of someone waiting for you. You just get to enjoy the most pedantic bit of your brain, having to be like, oh no, I think I will look up the rules for ice blocks a third time, just to make sure that I'm doing this right. That space, that space to think with a crunchy enough puzzle that you will think, it's quite nice on its own. It's quite nice when you don't have to worry about whether you are the one in the group with analysis paralysis that's making everyone write angry Reddit posts about you. Crunchy mass on your own. A puzzle you solve that has a story at the end of it. Yeah, you could do this on a computer, but I spend too much time on my phone already. Computers are where I work. I do want to play. I do want to give myself time to enjoy this weird little hobby and the weird little bits of it and sometimes there aren't isn't anyone around and i really need a rest and i still want to play a game the final game i want to talk about quickly is maquis this game about the french resistance is a very tiny little box and it's available as an app but i think it's a really really lovely little board game I was surprised by how tense and exciting this was. And I think it's got some really, really clever ideas in it. You see, you are French resistant fighters in the Second World War and you have to gather the resources you need to complete a mission that you've been given. There's a load of different scenarios in the box. Now, fundamentally, this is a worker placement game. There's a map and there's locations on it which will give you resources. Be in the right place and have a safe route home and you collect the items. Now this is the smartest bit of this game is even though it's solo, you take turns with an opponent. The opponent is literally just a terrifying German officer wandering around the town and placing their own pieces, mostly randomly, but with some cards. That means that there's a little bit of ability to predict what's gonna happen, but not a huge amount. Now. At first I assumed that it was going to be these things would land on you, but actually in some ways the rules are quite generous. There's three locations on each card and starting from the top you check whether it is occupied by a piece already. If it is, it'll try the next one. It's only if there's nowhere for it to go that it might end up attacking one of your people. 
So where's the tension if it's not? Well, it's that thing. You have to get back to the safe house at the end of the day. This is a huge challenge because there's bottlenecks and there's things on the way that might not go. So what do you do? You really need to get to a field on the other side of the board. You know you need to do that. Do you go there first? Because if you go there and there's still a route back, then you're going to be fine. So I go there and then a piece lands. Maybe it's in my way. Maybe it's not in my way. Now, if I had moved slowly from the safe house out one step at a time, I know that it wouldn't have blocked my route back. So each decision is this kind of worrying tension between making a safe route to where you need to be or taking the gamble. Quite often, certainly in the first scenarios I played, which was kind of tutorially, there was turns where it was like, oh, well, if this was a normal worker placement, I'd just go there, there and there. Uh, so I did that and one of my people died. They couldn't find a way home. That is horrible. It's worth noting that this is a game about real history. This is a slightly difficult topic to talk about with board games. A lot of our games, a lot of things that we play for fun are centered on historical events that have grim, horrible, real people in them. No, wait, grim, horrible events. Real suffering takes place in a lot of history, like probably more of history than we ever give credit to. It's not just games about colonialism that have got dark secrets to them and all of the games about industrialization, even if they don't look like they're about colonialism and quite often about forms of it. Even early agricultural games are talking about war and things that changed the nature of the world in ways that built power structures that were, well, things that we're still struggling with today. Putting my anarcho-primitivism aside, as a more extreme version of that, like, I do want to play these games. I don't want to play ones that misrepresent or hide or lie about these things. I certainly don't want to play one that cartoonifies and makes them silly. I do want to be able to have fun, though, but I do also want to be learning. I want to be finding out about the details of the situation. That's a really hard balance. A friend of mine, Howler, I regularly played with, pointed out that we should really like spend a bit of time when we're playing a game honouring the people who've suffered in the world that we're talking about. This is more true of historical games than ones with arbitrary settings elsewhere. More than space games or abstract games where there's less of a worry, probably. It's hard to honour this respectfully. It's hard to keep those things in mind when you're also there to have a bit of fun. This stuff is contentious for a reason. What I would say is that playing my keys solo, moving my pieces around this little piece of cardboard and worrying about where they would go, and that sad bereftness I had when I realised that I had taken too big a gamble and lost a person. On my own, it was easier to sit with that for a bit, to think about the horrors that we were talking about to think about the costs that people paid and that's quite powerful and something that rarely shows up in other games about world war ii 
Undaunted gave names to the soldiers and that added a bit of personality that got a bit of this, but a lot of games it's just a token and once it's gone it just goes. You can still honour this stuff, but I think that there's something in the solo game that gives you a chance to really sit with that for a bit. And that's special. Really, everything I've been saying here is just to say that spending a bit of time with yourself, doing a little magic ritual with some cardboard and some wood, you're always giving space to something, space to yourself, space for something you care about. That space, that room, is just really transformative sometimes. I do think it is worth taking a bit of time out of your day to make sure that you're away from screens and doing something that is important to you. There's nothing more embarrassing about playing a solo board game than doing a puzzle or, I don't know, what do people do on their own? Like watching 10 hours of a show on Netflix that you're not even sure you like? It's fine. You're spending time. Taking attention, putting it on yourself, giving yourself space, giving these games space to be whatever sort of puzzle you want. You might find out a little something about what you do love about games. You might find out that you don't have a head for it. Like, you know, I discovered that my difficulties paying attention because of ADHD are massively magnified in a situation where I am on my own playing a game. I could focus and I knew that I was playing the game and I cared about it and I had attention, but it was very easy for me to get just distracted enough to lose count of something or forget what I'd done. Those wrinkles will be very annoying if you're very strict about making sure you're keeping the rules correctly, which you probably want to be, because otherwise it's meaningless. But then also the temptation to fudge is there and listen, you do you. I just want to say that games are special and they might be special enough for you to enjoy on your own. Maybe give something a try. You might find that you can get one of those things out of your system where it's like, oh, well, if I want to enjoy the mathematics of the games, but all of my friends want to just have fun being silly and bluffing and lying, maybe I should do some gaming on my own and I'll get to get really mathy, really deep into puzzly logical constructs that don't really matter but you can make them matter i don't know i was surprised i think in the past i've always been a bit solo negative or a bit embarrassed talking about playing games on my own but i love games thank you so much for listening to this weird hopefully quite short and punchy and mm, soothing episode of shut up and sit down it was just me ava fox for thank you for listening let us know what you think of these weird ones uh, i should have said at the beginning but you know feel free to skip if you're not actually that interested we'll be back with a more normal podcast hopefully next week depends on people's schedules everything's a bit hard because as of recording it's still the middle of winter thanks so much for listening bye